we will be in Genesis 28, which Charlie just read for us. It's on page 22 in your pew Bibles, Genesis 28. I'm going to focus intensely on verses 10 through 22, Jacob's dream. So you might enjoy having that open in front of you. I'm going to ask God to help us now as we turn to his word. Dear God, we by faith believe your word when you say that your word doesn't return void. And so whatever it is you'd like to do now, um, we trust you will do by the preaching of your word. So come Holy Spirit and do a work among this church in order to glorify the Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Despite how densely populated Northern Virginia is, it's not uncommon to see construction sites and in residential areas. So if you're out for a jog or a walk, you may have seen one of these signs. They're big and handsome signs, as much an advertisement for the builder as a sign that a house will soon be built. And you also may have noticed, if, you, if you're ever looking at one of these signs on a residential lot, you'll be staring at it. Maybe there's even a picture of the coming attraction. And when you look up to see the lot where the house is going to be built, you notice that there's already a house there. A house looking kind of sad, kind of sheepish. It knows what's going to come. You see, to, to build in northern Virginia, you have to also tear down. And you could put a sign like this in front of the life of Jacob. When we meet Jacob in Genesis 28, after what has happened thus far, he's a man that needs to be built. The, the, the blessings that have been put upon him, they involve descendants and children, a family of his own. They involve taking possession of the land. But none of, none of these things are blessings that he currently has. Jacob is a house that needs to be built. Anybody can see that when we get to Genesis 28. That's why he set off to find a wife. But he's also not an empty lot. On closer inspection, when you look at the man, you feel like there's as much tearing down that needs to happen as building up. I mean, he certainly doesn't look like a paragon of the type of person that would be built into the people of God. He's a grasper. He's a trickster. He's a cheat. He's just lied to his father's face in Genesis 27, and he seems perfectly capable of living with the fruits of that lie. No, for Jacob... In order for him to be built up, Jacob must also be torn down. And that's the feel when we move into Genesis 28 and we see what happens. The building process begins when Jacob is sent away to find a wife and start a family. But at the same time as we'll see, the way this unfolds, being set off to Haran by himself, is as much a tearing down as it is a building up. In Genesis 28, in this dream, this vision, in Jacob's reaction, we'll actually see the first stone set of the new man, Jacob, 
but we'll also see the first stone set for the house of God, Bethel. And in both cases, there's a leveling that takes place in the process. So what I wanna look at today as we look at this dream that Jacob has on this journey, as I wanna just consider the beginning of the rebuilding of Jacob. The beginning of the rebuilding of Jacob. And we'll notice three things that unfold. First, the leveling, how the Lord clears the lot. Second, the revisioning, how he establishes a new blueprint. And third, the setting of the first stone, the putting of the first stone in place. So first, the leveling. Our scene opens with Jacob leaving for a journey to Haran. Now, now his parents, particularly Isaac in verse 5, have sent him away to Haran. This is northern Mesopotamia. And in verse 10, the part of our passage I want to dive in at, we read, Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran. Now on the surface, this looks merely like a family sending a son off to find a wife. But below the surface, this is more like a banishment. Jacob has just stolen his brother's blessing. He's humiliated his father. His brother is desiring to kill him. So his mom has figured out a way, the pressure of him needing to find a suitable wife, to get his father to send him away. And we'll see as we look more at this journey he's on, why this is in fact the type of banishment for him. The distance between Beersheba, where he begins, and where he's supposed to end, Haran, is 460 miles. It's northward. It's through wilderness. And it's to a place, Haran or Paddan Aram, it's to a place that his grandfather Abraham is from, northern Mesopotamia, a very different part of the world with different gods. And if you remember, back in Genesis 12, when this whole family project of this blessed family began, the first command was for Abraham to leave Haran. He was supposed to leave the land of foreign gods and come to a new land. And then in Genesis 24, just a few chapters ago, when Abraham, getting on in years, decides to find a wife for his son Isaac, Abraham very carefully picks one of his servants, his oldest, most trusted servant, and he sends him up to Haran, this is where his family's from, to find a suitable wife for his son Isaac. Now in this scene in Genesis 24, Abraham is adamant, he stresses it three times, that under no circumstances is this servant to bring his son Isaac back to Haran. I mean, the servant even says, well, what if I find the woman and she won't come back? Should I take Isaac with me? And he makes him swear, you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. The people of God are not supposed to go back to Mesopotamia. But our, our story begins, Jacob's sojourn begins, saying he left Beersheba and headed towards Haran. Now consider further details. Verse 11. And he, Jacob, came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and lay down in that place to sleep. This is the only um, episode or event we're told about in what would have been a months-long journey. It must be important. 
And what's, what's interesting, there's a few things we can see about his journey here that make it even more perilous. Number one, he's alone. It seems that no one or nothing is coming with him. Back in Genesis 24, when Abraham sent his servant, it says he was sent with 10 of his master's camels and all sorts of choice gifts. He went as an entourage. Jacob travels with nothing and no one. We know this because down in verse 20, he actually prays that God would provide him with bread and clothing, bare essentials. So he's alone. Also interesting here in verse 11, he seems to end up nowhere. So in verse 11, this word place is used three times. It says he came to a certain place, taking one of the stones of the place. He put it under his head to lay down in that place. Now that doesn't seem odd until you realize down in verse 19 that Moses, who's writing this, knows exactly where it is, loose or Luz, L-U-Z. This is a Canaanite territory. He knows perfectly well where it is. Why doesn't he just say he came to Luz? Well, because Moses wants you to experience this like Jacob did. He didn't know where he was. He's in the middle of nowhere. And he doesn't have an ability to find shelter. He's sleeping in the wide open, which is why he has to lie down on the ground. All he has is a stone for a pillow. And then this final detail, we're told that it's night and the sun had set. And that Jacob, because he had nowhere to shelter, taking one of the stones, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. Why all this detail on this lone night? Well, this little phrase that the sun had set is actually very pregnant. 20 years later, after his exile, his sojourn in northern Mesopotamia, in Haran. 20 years later, in Genesis 32, Jacob will come back from this journey. And as he enters back into the promised land, he has yet another night alone with God. In this case, he wrestles with him at the ford of the Jabbok River. And after that night of wrestling is over, when his hip is put out of its socket, we read in Genesis 32, 31, and the sun rose upon Jacob. Seems like a small detail, but it's huge. Do you see what's going on? The sun is setting on this man and he is entering into a 20-year dark night. He is outside of the promised land. He is a man alone in nowhere at night. Now, what might... What might we need to see when we find Jacob, this son of blessing, in the middle of nowhere? I think we're meant to feel Jacob's journey at this point as an experience of what the Bible refers to as exile. Exile in the Bible means being sent out of your home and barred from re-entry. So Jacob can't go home because his brother will murder him. And this theme of exile, it runs through the Bible. Adam and Eve are exiled from Eden. They're barred by the cherubim with flaming thorns from going back home. Jacob here seems to be exiled from home. Moses will spend 40 years in Midian. 
Israel will be exiled in Egypt for 400 years, in the wilderness for 40 years, and then off again, on again, cast out of their home into Assyria and Babylon. Even individuals, Ezekiel, will be cast into the wilderness. Paul, after his conversion, tells us in Galatians that he went to Arabia, some random mountain probably, all by himself, Jesus, after his baptism, before any public ministry happens, is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 years. There's a pattern here we need to pause and consider. And I think it tells us this. For God to build a person, he must first tear down the old Adam. And that happens in exile. He must tear down the old man. He must tear down the old self. This is what we, we see sometimes when Paul talks about putting off the old self, putting to death the new self so we can put on the new self. And this seems to be something that God does at the beginning of a project, at the beginning of Jacob's life, at the beginning of the life of Israel, the beginning of the life of Paul, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There's a pattern here. And I think as I said, what it tells us is there's actually more taking apart of the old self than we may realize when we learn that God is beginning to build something with us. So from Genesis 3 into Jacob's life, we've seen this distorted type of humanity develop. Human beings become obsessed with autonomy. This is Adam and Eve. They want freedom from God's law. Human beings, when they realize that there's more than one on earth, they turn to rivalry, Cain and Abel. This turns to violence. Think of the generation before the flood. Think of the conflict between Esau and Jacob. And then, and this is perfectly exemplified in the life of Jacob, they fall into this subtle sin of self-reliance. I can do it myself. I mean, think of Jacob. He hasn't done so bad on his own. I mean, nature dealt him an unfair hand. He wasn't the firstborn. That's not his fault. Nature gave him a bad hand. Because he's not the firstborn, he doesn't get the birthright. Well, you know what? He finds a way in his own strength to get it. Good for him. By being the secondborn, he wasn't to get the blessing. Well, you know what? He took matters into his own hands, and look what he did. He landed with the blessing. Jacob does pretty well by self-reliance. But you see, God is not going to build his people or his house or his kingdom on a foundation of our so-called autonomy, of our violence towards one another, and of our notion of self-reliance. And friends, these things get leveled in exile. You see, there's certain foundational work the Lord has to do with us that simply can't happen in the normal ebb and flow of an easy and busy life. He has to set a person aside. And you see what's happening with Jacob here is he's left totally alone. He has nothing to rely on. He's afraid. He's vulnerable. And the Lord has him right where he wants him. And so I would just ask, I wonder if God is working on your life. I believe God is always at work. And if so, I wonder, I wonder what your exile has been like. 
They look very different. Sometimes a season of exile won't involve being moved, not outwardly anyway, at all from your home or routine. But inside, something breaks. Maybe the noonday demon, a midlife crisis, maybe a divorce, maybe cancer. Maybe you're just so unhappy despite the fact that you've accomplished so much. Maybe you just don't like yourself. But you're somewhere that doesn't feel like home and you don't know what to do. And if that's you and you're a follower of God, I want you to take courage and be encouraged because this is where God does the deep work. He strips Jacob down to the studs so he can rebuild the foundation. So this brings us to our second question then, or our second point. Jacob laid bare. He's literally lying on his back unconscious when we finish verse 11. He's stripped down to the studs. The second thing we see in this rebuilding of Jacob is that God gives him a vision. There's a revisioning that happens. I mean, you know if you're a builder and you tell a family or whoever's going to buy this house that, yeah, you're going to tear that old house down with its rotting studs and its broken drywall. You're going to rip it down. But before they pay, you show them a picture of what you're going to do. Sometimes you put it on the sign. This is the vision. This is what this lot could be if you just trust me. And so it seems before any actual building happens that what Jacob receives here is a vision of a whole new possibility, a whole new world before a stone is even set. And this is his dream. And it runs from verse 12. 12 through 15. And the dream, and this again is one of the most famous portions of Scripture. Some people call it Jacob's ladder. The dream breaks into two parts. What Jacob sees and what he hears. What he sees, this is the first thing we notice. He sees three things. A ladder connecting heaven and earth. Angels going up and down on the ladder. And the Lord God Almighty standing over top of it all. And I want to read you here one rendering of the Hebrew that I really like because it catches the the quickness of the vision. It's like he's blinking his eyes and seeing this. Jacob dreamed, and look, a ramp was set against the ground with its top reaching the heavens. And look, messengers of God were coming up and going down. And look, the Lord, the Lord was poised over Jacob. Now this vision, what it does, it is essentially it shatters all his prior assumptions about reality. Jacob thought he was alone. It turns out the Lord and his messengers are active all around him. Jacob thought he was leaving the territory of the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, because Back then, they thought gods were territorial at best. So you had, you had a god in Mesopotamia. You had a god down in Canaan. But, but when you left one area, you left that god. Well, he finds out in this vision that this god is the god of all the earth. And finally, Jacob, surely thinking that the space between himself and everything he'd done, the space between the trickster and the deceiver and God was certainly unbridgeable. He finds in this vision that it's being bridged. That shockingly, God is actually coming down from his holy abode onto this earth, right where this sinner lies. 
Then there's what Jacob hears. God starts to speak in verse 13. And what he says from verse 13 through 15 is essentially a great cluster of promises. You could think of a cluster of grapes hanging heavy on a vine. He just meets these out. The first set of promises is what you might call the standard patriarchal promises. Exactly what God had promised to Abraham and Isaac, he now promises to Jacob. Land, descendants, and blessing. You will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is standard fair, but it needs to be established that the promises made to Abraham and Isaac are in fact made to Jacob. But I think what's far more tantalizing is what happens in verse 15. Verse 15 does not seem necessary at first. By the end of 14, God has set out all the necessary promises about the project he began with Abraham. And in verse 14, again we hear the word behold, and the Lord keeps going. But only now, it's far more personal. And it's as though God wants Jacob to know something about the relationship God intends to have with Jacob. He says, behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will bring you back, Jacob. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Notice what God is saying to the frightened man. First, he's saying, I will be with you. We, we dare not make a cliche out of this promise. God being with us. This is, this is the promise underneath all the other promises. This is the promise that all the other promises point toward and hope for. This is because exile at its bottom is not just being moved on a monopoly board from where you think you should be. Exile is being estranged from God. I will be with you is God saying, I'm going to bring an end to exile at the deepest level. And next the Lord says, I will protect you. I will watch over you. It's this idea that even as you go into a foreign land, I, I will attend to the details of your life, the ones that threaten you. I will contend with those who contend with you, Jacob. And God finally does contend with his uncle Laban, who tries to squeeze everything out of Jacob. Third, he says, I will bring you back. Rebekah and Isaac, they were the ones who sent Jacob away. Rebecca naively says in chapter 27 to Jacob, go away to my brother Laban and I will send for you when your brother's anger has cooled and I will bring you back. She never does. But the Lord speaks over him and he says, I will bring you back home. And to sum everything up, I will not leave you until I have accomplished every word that I've promised you. These words, I will be with you, they're just two words in Hebrew. There's no need for more. They could sum up so many stories in the Bible. They address our deepest problem and our deepest need. They point ahead, don't you see, to the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. They point ahead to Jesus' promise when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So before Jacob wakes up, and you have to realize, friends, 
the profundity in the fact that all this is happening to the man while he's unconscious. I mean, surely this is a sign of grace. He's a sinner. He's doing absolutely nothing. He's not even awake. And God just speaks blessing over his life and yokes himself. God yokes himself at the fault of his own reputation to the trickster, to the sinner, to the liar. What might we learn from this? What's unfolding with this incredible dream, this incredible promise? What might it tell us about this question of what it looks like when God rebuilds a person? Well, I think two things. I think the first thing it reminds us of is that at the bottom or at the foundation of every person, whatever structure your life is being built into, at the bottom lies a dream. Do you know that? It's your dream. It's what you want. Maybe it was given to you by your parents. Maybe it was given to you by culture. Maybe you drummed it up yourself. It starts subtly, but before you know it, you get into life and you realize, if I'm really honest, it's all about this dream. And the dream has certain promises. These are promises you make to yourself. And they go like this. I promise myself that I will not be happy unless this happens. And maybe you don't articulate the promise, but somewhere in your soul, your soul has said, I swear to you, self, if this doesn't happen for me, I do not have a life worth living. And do you see what God does? Is he needs, to, he needs to uproot that dream and it needs to be replaced by the dream of Jacob. It's not that that dream might be bad. Maybe God has those things for you. But you see, the essence of the dream of Jacob, this is the cornerstone. This is the foundation. And what is the essence of that dream? That God is real. And he is the most important reality in all the world. And that God breaks into our domain whenever he pleases. And when he does, his word is the most important matter for our lives. And our lives, they need to be ordered around his promises. Our priorities, our principles, our morals, our hopes and dreams are built by being aligned with this cornerstone. And at the heart of the dream, at the very center, the thing you want underneath all the things you want is the fact that God will be with you. And he actually wants you to be with him. Jesus actually prays in John 17. He says to his father, I want them to be with me where I am. That has to be your dream. That has to be what you want more than all the things you want. And when God has established that foundation, he's ready to build his man. He's ready to build his people. He's ready to build his house. And so finally, let's see how Jacob responds. What does he do when he wakes up? Well, we see what happens when he wakes up in verse 16 through 22. Jacob wakes from his dream in verse 16, and then he begins to respond. First, he responds with awe and reverence. We read in verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. 
And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Next, he responds by setting up a stone. The stone he had as a pillow. Can you see him there? He doesn't know what to do. There isn't an established religion to this God. He, does, he, he feels he needs to do something. So he puts this stone upright. And maybe he, has, he seems to have a little oil he's traveling with. And he gets it out and he pours it on the top of the stone. So it glistens. And he says, so early in the morning, verse 18, Jacob took the stone he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar. He poured oil on it and he called the name of that place Bethel, Bet-El. It means house of God. And finally, I picture him on his knees at this point. We don't know, it doesn't say. Maybe he has his hand on the top of that stone and he does the only next thing he can think of. He makes a promise back to the God who made him all these promises. And he does it in the form of a vow. This is the longest recorded vow in the Old Testament. Verse 20, Jacob made a vow. And he said, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Do you see the transformation that's beginning, both for the place and for the man? One stone has been laid for what will become a temple, Bethel, the house of the Lord. It will become very important to Israel later. And One stone has been set in this man, a cornerstone. He's certainly not complete yet. I mean, he almost seems to still hedge a little bit with this vow. Did you notice it? If God will be with me, if he will keep all these promises, then I will call him my God. You feel the slightest bit of hesitation, Jacob. But, but don't you see the change that's happening? Don't you see the deceiver and the liar is now the vow maker? The trickster who deceived his father on earth is turning to his father in heaven and making a vow to him. The, the man who is afraid to go home at the threat of murder from Esau is now able to envision a time when God will bring him back to his father's house. And the grasper... The grasper is becoming the giver of all that you give me. The last verse, of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. This is always the case with the people of God. They realize that once they've had this vision that God is real, they owe everything to him. They realize that everything else that happens in life is a gift from him. And they make a practice to give him a full tenth of it as a way to say thank you. Passages like this are where the Christian principle of tithing come in. We give back to the Lord 10%. We bring it to his house at Bethel to say thank you. No, the grasper is becoming the giver. I want to move to close by just sort of organizing all this around two main points of application or insights. Number one, when it comes to how God rebuilds people, he will get down to the foundation of you. 
Sometimes we, we come to Christ and we think what we're missing is a nice capstone, maybe a little polish, when in fact we need the foundations to be torn up. We don't need a capstone, we need a new cornerstone. And this can happen, it can take a while, but you know it if you've walked with the Lord a long time. He gets down to the foundation, but don't be afraid. He wants to build you into a more sturdy structure. And at the core of us, he wants to be this fear of the Lord, this awe and reverence towards him. The notion that he is the final reality, that his word is the promise that shapes our life. And secondly, I think this teaches us that the most important promise of all the promises is the promise that God will be with you. You see, this is important because so many of the other promises will not come to fruition in Jacob's life. He won't possess the land. He won't see all of his descendants. He actually dies in Egypt and has to be brought home for his funeral. And this is the case with so many people through the Old Testament. They believe in a promise, they die before its full fruition. This is the case with Christians. We believe all these promises about the resurrection, the new body, the new heavens, the new earth, total peace, being made new, total reconciliation, and we don't, we don't fully see these things. But this is why the promise of God's presence is so crucial, because it is the thing that's tangible and breaking in in the present. Jacob will need to know, like he knows the skin on his own body, that God is with him as he walks the rest of his life. Do you know how different it is when you're a little kid, you walk into a scary house, and you're all alone. Do you know how different it feels if you simply have your dad with you or your mom with you? The presence of the other. And friends, this promise, God with you, it can be yours in Jesus Christ. It's not just for the patriarchs, but it can only be yours in Jesus Christ. Because you see, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. In John 1 verse 51, as he's talking to two of his first disciples, Nathaniel and Philip, they're trying to figure out how it can be that he's the son of God. And he takes, he quotes verbatim from this dream. He says, you'll see greater things than anything you've seen before. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. He says, I'm the ladder. I'm the place where heaven and earth unite. I'm the place where God shows up. In Jesus, Emmanuel, you can know that God is with you. You can know just what Jesus says when he says to Jacob, speaking through God the Father, I will be with you, I will protect you, I will never leave you until I fulfill all my promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I do pray that you would be at work building the people in this church and building this church. You would establish a proper foundation and that people here who have been called by you would recognize that stone in their life, the marker of when they know the transformation began. They know the project started. And I pray they would align themselves with that cornerstone. We pray this in your name. Amen.